Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 4, 31, and Exodus 35, 30 through 35. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Holiab, son of Ahisamech of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, welcome to uh, Exilic, in particular if it's your first time here. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors uh, at Exilic. And at the top of every year, uh, we do an annual series on the DNA of our church. And our DNA consists of three things, our very unique name, our mission, and our vision. And for the past four weeks, we've taken a look at our name and our mission. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be taking a look at our vision. Now, what is the difference between your mission and your vision? Because oftentimes organizations and institutions use these two words interchangeably. And the distinction that I would make is this. Your mission is what you want to do. Your vision, however, is who you want to be. So what is our mission? Why are we here at Exilic? What do we want to do? It's right here on the blue banners. We want to inspire thinkers to believe. We want to inspire believers to think. Now, now that we're doing this, though, who do we want to be as a result of executing this? And if you take a look at the very back of your bulletin, uh, our vision doesn't get as much press as our uh, mission does. But if you take a look at the back cover of your bulletin, our vision is this. We want you to be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Now, why 21st century disciples? Well, on the one hand, uh, what we believe should never, ever change. So our beliefs, our doctrines, our creeds, they should stay the same and they have stayed the same. On the other hand, the world that we live in today is radically, radically different than the first century world. And so we need to be people that hold these ancient beliefs and yet we live them out in the modern world. Now, how do we do that? Well, one way of holding these ancient beliefs in order to live them out in the modern world is, first of all, to think critically about the culture and the world that we live in, but not just to think critically about the world that we live in, but we also need to act positively in the world that we live in as well. If I can break this statement down even more into one word, give me a picture of what it looks like to of what this person looks like, a 21st century disciple who thinks critically and acts positively. And I can give you several one-word answers, but for our purpose today, I want us to think about the idea 
that we are all creators. Now, I've grown up in the church uh, basically my entire life, and uh, I don't even know, I, I can't even recall how many sermons I've heard on um, creativity or the imagination. Uh, there was a lot on doctrine, but I very rarely heard anything uh, on the arts. Uh, but here's why creativity, the imagination, and the arts are very important. Last week, uh, I asked you to imagine uh, that we all live in an iron box. And in this iron box, there are no windows. And this iron box is the only world that we know. This is the only reality that we know. And surrounding this iron box is another layer of concrete and another thick layer of titanium. How do you get the people in this iron box then to see that there is this whole other world that is out there? Well, the only way of getting the people in the iron box to see that there's another world is by lifting the lid of the iron box. Now, how do you do that? Last week, we said one of the tools to lifting up that iron lid is stories, probably the most powerful tool, because stories can transport us into another world. I would say another way, another tool to lift up the lid of the iron box is suffering and tragedy. This past week, we lost one of the most invincible athletes, perhaps most invincible people in the world, in Kobe. And I cannot tell you how many people, as a result of his death, have thought about their own mortality and the meaning of life. What am I doing? What is my purpose? What happens after you die? Why are people asking these existential questions? It's because the lid has just been lifted. That's what suffering and tragedy does. And so whether it's 9-11, the death of someone that we think is invincible, it makes us question, it makes us very philosophical very quickly. But there is a third way of lifting up the lid of the iron box, not just stories, not just suffering, but a third way of lifting up the lid of the iron box to see another world that is out there is beauty. Some years ago, I was talking to a very skeptical, very sharp lawyer. And he said to me, you know, Aaron, a lot of the things that you're saying are not persuasive enough to make me Christian just yet. But there is one thing that you said that I just can't wrap my head around. And he said, your argument from beauty. And what he meant by that is that there's something about beauty. So whether it's a sunrise or a sunset, standing in front of the Grand Canyon, looking at a painting, looking at the ocean, there's something about beauty that provokes within us a sense of wonder. And wonder can oftentimes be a bridge to the transcendent. And so wonder, wonder does this thing where it, spark, it, it changes the way that we look at things. And it not only changes the way we look at things, but the things that we look at now begin to change. So we begin to change, the things that we look at begin to change. And so he was saying, Am I, is this feeling, this sense of wonder I have, just a chemical reaction that I'm experiencing? Or is this desire, this longing that I have within my heart actually pointing to something else? And so I want to take a look at three things today. Number one, the idea that we are all creators. Number two, that we're not just called to create, but we are called to create good things. And number three, we are called to be creators of the good for the good of all people. So take a look with me again at uh, verse one of uh, Genesis one, a verse that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's stop right there. The very first time we are ever introduced to God, it is not as God as a father, it is not God as a king, 
But the very first time we are introduced to God is God as an artist. Well, how do we know that? Because it says, in the beginning, God created something. And I find it very interesting that the very first verb that is ever used in the scriptures is an artistic verb to actually uh, create something. And the pinnacle of his creation, which is not in our bulletin, comes in verse 27 when he creates us in his image. And because we are made in the image of God, therefore what that means is that we are called to be creators as well. Or as J.R.R. Tolkien would say, we are called to be sub-creators, uh, creating things and innovating things. And if you continue to read throughout Genesis 1 and 2, the very first instructions that Adam and Eve are given are to name the animals creatively. And this is what we call in science taxonomy. And so they're given creative instructions. And so if you feel like, you know what, I don't need to listen to the sermon because I'm not the creative type. I am purely, you know, a left-brained, analogical, rational, very logical person. I'm not really that right kind of, right-brained kind of artistic person. When you read Genesis 1, the fact that you are made in the image of a creator and therefore a sub-creator, what that means is that you do have a creative gene that is planted within you. Okay, every single one of us does. Now, here's the question. What does this creative process actually uh, look like for us? Turn to the first page of your bulletin, and I want to read you a quote from a rapper uh, named Jackie Hill Perry. And she says, I would define art as our finite attempt to reflect God by creating something from nothing and saying it is good. We are not able to create something from nothing in a literal sense, but we are able to make masterpieces out of what may seem insignificant. And so when we take a look at Genesis 1, we do see God creating ex nihilo, and in Latin that simply means creating something out of nothing, which is, that's mind-blowing. Now, we can't do that, but as sub-creators, what we can do is create something out of something. So very technically speaking, we can say that God never made a laptop. But what we can say is God gave us the raw materials for us to make a laptop. Technically speaking, we can say God never made a chair. But he did give us the raw materials like trees for us as sub-creators to use those raw materials in order to make a chair. Uh, read with me the second quote from Mark Knoll. And Noel says, who formed the world of nature which provides the raw material for physical sciences? Who formed the universe of human interactions which is the raw material of politics, economics, sociology, and history? Who is the source of all harmony, form, and narrative pattern which is the raw material for art? Who is the source of the human mind which is the raw material for philosophy and psychology? And who moment by moment maintains the connection between our minds and the world beyond our minds, God does and God did and God does. And so what does this uh, process, creative process look like again? It looks like taking God's raw materials, arranging them in such a way to create something beautiful and create something good. So I wanna be as very practical as possible. So what does that look like for me as a coder? Well, I take God's raw materials, letters, numbers, periods, parentheses, hyphens, dashes, and I arrange them in such a way to make a code. What does it look like for me as a teacher or preacher? I arrange words, the raw material of words, in order to communicate a story 
or a message. What does that look like for me as a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad? I arrange my home in order to cultivate a, a, a home where it's friendly for children. What does it look like for me as a chef? I arrange food, the raw material of food, in such a way that it's delicious and it's good. What does it look like for me as an interior designer or an event planner? I arrange furniture in such a way where the event or whatever is taking place uh, can flourish. What does it look like for me as a fashion designer or uh, an influencer? I arrange my clothes because this is art. Some of us are better than others, but this is art and we arrange it in such a way where it's influential or it's aesthetically pleasing uh, to the eye. What does it look like as a doctor? I arrange body parts in such a way that it makes people healthy. What does it look like as a musician? I arrange sound in such a way that it's melodic and musical. What does it look like for me as a leader? I use human resources, which are the raw material, and I arrange them in such a way where our company or organization can flourish. It could be hiring, firing, reshuffling things, but I'm taking God's raw materials and I'm arranging them in such a way where I create something good and beautiful. And what I'm trying to say is this, every single one of us in this room are sub-creators. We cannot not create. The question is, is what we're creating good or is it bad? So take a look with me at verse 3 to 4. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Read with me verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning uh, the sixth day. The word good is used seven times in Genesis chapter 1. And there are several different ways of defining good. For example, in the New Testament, Jesus says, No one is good but God alone. And when Jesus says no one is good but God alone, he's talking about God's morality. But here in Genesis 1, when God looks at his creation and says it is good, he's not talking about the morality of the heavens and the earth. He's not talking about the morality of animals. When he creates all that he has made and says it is good, what he is referring to here is aesthetic beauty. So God creates the world and everything in it. He takes a step back. He evaluates and judges what he made. And he says it is aesthetically beautiful and pleasing to the eye. God could have made a graytopia where the sun, moon, and stars are all gray, where all our skin colors are all gray, all the animals are gray, all the flowers are gray. And you know what? The universe would have functioned still perfectly. But the point of creation is not just functionality or how utilitarian something is, but the point of creation is also to make beautiful things. This is why when he made the world, he made it very diverse, different skin colors. He made red strawberries, yellow lemons, blue and green peacocks. He burst forth all of these different colors out of the flurry of his imagination. And you know what? Each and every one of us is called to do the same. We're not just called to make functional things or efficient things that work, but we are equally called to make beautiful, beautiful things. So if you're a chef, you microwave cup noodles for 50 minutes so it tastes burnt, that is not very good. But if you're a chef at, at 11 Madison and you make a beautiful dish uh, that tastes delicious and you plate it well because we not only eat with our mouths but we eat with our eyes, behold, that is very good. Uh, if uh, you're an engineer, you know, 20 years ago, we had these bricks as cell phones. 
not very good. But today, when you take a look at the smartphone, it is super sleek. And behold, it is very good. Pastor Gene on the dance floor, behold, not very good. <laughs> There's a reason why he took all those dance lessons in seminary. My wife, she can throw it down even if she's eight months pregnant. Very, very good. So every one of us is called to create um, not just things, but we are called to create uh, beautiful things. And what I'm trying to say is this. Beauty is very much a biblical category. So I want to um, read with you somewhat of an obscure text uh, on page 7 of your bulletin from Exodus 35. Uh, it says, Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Now, to put this text contextually, uh, this is about the construction and decoration of the tabernacle. What I find very interesting is that God doesn't just want a tabernacle that is built for him to dwell in, but he wants it beautiful. And so what does he do? He gives God-given gifts and skills and talents to uh, Bezalel and to Oholiab. And Bezalel, we know, is skilled in, um, uh, in metalwork. He's a metalsmith. He's a mason. He's a carpenter. Oholiab is a teacher. And both of them have skills in embroidery. And they're both designers. And I don't think that that's by accident. And the reason for that, again, is very, beauty very much is a, a biblical category. And the reason for that is because God himself is the source of all beauty. And beauty is very, very powerful because it has a way of making us look at things in a very different way. And as a result, the things that we look at also begin to change. So think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, it displays his knowledge. And so when, when we create things, it points to some kind of creator. Art flows out of the artist. Uh, if you take a look on the first page of your bulletin, uh, even Richard Dawkins uh, mentions this sort of ethereal experience when he takes a look at the world, the beauty of the world. And Dawkins says, when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be, you are naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, admiration, and you almost feel, almost, a desire to worship something. I feel this. I recognize that other scientists such as Carl Sagan feel this. Einstein felt it. All of us share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexity of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos, of geological time. And it's tempting to translate that feeling of awe and worship into a desire to worship something in particular, uh, some particular thing, a person or an agent. And you want to attribute it to a maker, to a creator. But what science has achieved is an emancipation from that impulse 
to attribute these to a creator. And what I find so interesting about uh, what Dawkins is saying is that he does acknowledge the sense of awe, uh, the sense of reverence when he takes a look at the beauty of the world. But what he says is that science has sort of silenced that desire and it's severed off any, any sense of awe or any sense of wonder. And that's a shame uh, because that's not science, that's, that's scientism. Scientism is when you think that science is the only way of explaining the world. And what I would say is that science is wonderful, but it's just one piece for explaining how we understand reality and the world that we live in. Science is not holistic enough for us to understand the world. So think about this for a moment. Uh, the geologist and the former president of Cornell, Frank Rhodes, once asked this question, why is the kettle boiling? Scientific answer, the kettle is boiling because there's energy conversion, heats up the water, therefore the water is boiling. But Rhodes says, could there possibly be another reason why the kettle is boiling? And he says, yes. The kettle is boiling because I wanted to make tea for my friends. And so Rhodes says that there's a sociological reason for why the kettle is boiling. And my point is this. Science gives us one picture for explaining reality in the world, but there's a reason why we need a humanities department. We need an arts department in our universities because it's only together that holistically we can understand reality and the world that we live in. This is why the philosopher Immanuel Kant once said, we do not see the world as it really is, and therefore the universe lies hidden in plain sight. But beauty and the arts in particular have a way of helping us see the invisible, the things that we cannot uh, see very well. Uh, the final quote um, on the first page of your bulletin from Martin Gayford, he says, there was a fantastic Monet exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1995. They got a million people to see it. I went to see it one Sunday morning. It was fabulous. When I came out, I started looking at the bushes on Michigan Avenue with a little more care because Monet had surroundings with such attention. He made you see more. Van Gogh does that for you too. He makes you see the world around just a little more intensely and you enjoy seeing it uh, like that. So, just to recap, we are all creators, but we're not only called to make things, but we are called to make good things but we're not only called to make good things, but we're called to make good things for the good of all people. Now, how do we know that? If you take a look at Genesis 1 again, we know that when God made the world and everything in it, he didn't just create it for himself, but he created the world and everything in it to share it for the good of all people, which is why he made uh, every single one of us. And similarly, as we create things, we're not just called to create good things, but we're called to create good things for the good of all people. Uh, this past week, I was watching a, a talk with uh, N.T. Wright. Most of you probably might not know him, but he's a theologian. But he was having a conversation with someone that you probably all do know, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is the founder of PayPal, one of the first to uh, invest in Facebook, LinkedIn, Yelp, super smart, super wealthy. And they were having a conversation called Christianity, the Imagination, and Innovation. And at the end of the talk, Thiel said that what we all need to do as humans, humankind is this, we need to see what problems people are not working on, and we need to be the ones that are working on it. Work on problems people are not working on. Now that sounds very simple. Work on problems that people aren't, of course. 
But why is that so hard for all, all of us to do? There's a few reasons for that. Number one, we are creators, but that doesn't mean that we just create good things. Our creativity and our imaginations are not uh, neutral. They're not amoral. Uh, in many ways, our creativity and our imaginations can be very dark sometimes. I mean, can you imagine for a moment with me if everyone in this room knew what you imagined about? You probably wouldn't want that sometimes. Why? Because oftentimes our creativity and our imaginations can become very polluted and it can go dark very quickly. So as a result of that, because we're creators, we also have the capacity to make very bad things. And so therefore we see a lot of ugliness in our world as well. But we not only have the capacity to make very ugly things and very dark things and despicable things, but oftentimes even when we do make good things, we're not making it for the good of all people, but we're doing these things for the good of my own career, the advancement of my own career, or so that I can become very rich very quickly. And so even when we do make good things, our motivations are often tarnished and adulterated. So here's the question. How do we get to a point where we acknowledge that we are creators, where we're making good things for the good of all people? And what I would say is this, what needs to happen first and foremost then is that we, meet, we need to be made good. Any creative activity is self-revelatory. And so whether you're making food, that says something about the person that made the food. Whether you're making art, it says something about the artist. If you're an engineer, it says something about the engineer and you're making something. All creative act is self-revelatory. But if some of the things that we're creating are not very good, it says something about ourselves that we are deeply, deeply flawed. And so what we need then is a renovation within our, within our own hearts. And when you fast forward to the pages of the New Testament, what we see is that the God who created all things in Genesis 1 is none other than Jesus Christ himself. How do I know that? John chapter one, through him, that is Jesus, all things were made and nothing was made that has been made. Colossians chapter one, through him, the heavens and the earth were made, things invisible and visible. And I love that it says things invisible and visible were made because art helps us to see the invisible. So through him, all things were made, the heavens and the earth, the invisible and the visible. Um, they were made through him and they were made for him and by his power, he holds all things together. So who do we see in Genesis 1 that is the creator of all things? Um, it is none other than Jesus himself. Now, why is this important? It's important is because the creator that made all things, the person of Jesus Christ, actually becomes like one of his creation. Now, why in the world would he ever do that? Uh, last I checked, most of us would not want to become like one of our creations. But why would the creator God become like one of his creation? Well, there's a very ancient um, uh, form of Japanese art uh, called kintsugi. Uh, another way of describing, uh, another way of defining, uh, describing kintsugi is a kintsukuroi, and kin simply means gold. Sugi is the joining together of something. So you're using gold to rejoin something together again. And 
typically the way that kintsugi is practiced is with broken pottery. So usually when we drop a piece of you know, pottery and it breaks, we look at it as a piece of junk, and we usually we, we throw it out. But in kintsugi, you don't see that broken piece of pottery as a piece of junk. Rather, you put the broken pieces of pottery together, and the way that you glue the broken pieces of pottery together is with this gold lacquer. Not clear lacquer, but gold lacquer. And the reason why uh, the Japanese use gold lacquer is because they, they, they put the gold over the cracks or the scars of the pottery, and they want you to see the cracks. They want you to see the scars because the scars tell a story of the pottery's previous life, of how it was shattered and broken. But as a result of this gold lacquer that puts it together, this broken piece of pottery is now made whole and new again. Now, I, you know where I'm going with this, right? What it, at a certain point, kintsugi is no longer about broken pottery. Kintsugi is very philosophical because it's really pointing to restoration and wholeness again. And as I think about my life and every one of your lives probably, um, there's something very deeply flawed and broken about us. Uh, I think every one of us has done things that we regret very deeply. And as a result of that, sometimes our, our lives feel like it's shattered in a million pieces. <laughs> and we have no idea how to make ourselves whole again. We've tried different things, but our lives still feel very broken and fragmented. And as I thought about what Kintsugi is, I could not help but think about Jesus Christ, whose blood is that gold lacquer, who puts us back together again, and his seal is the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Just like Kintsugi, our scars tell a story of our previous life. But as we think about the scars, we also rejoice because we are made whole again. We are made born again. And the reason for that is because on the cross, Jesus became fragmented. On the cross, as we're about to see, Jesus became broken into a million different pieces because he bore the weight of our sins. And Isaiah would say, it crushed him into a million pieces so that we could be made whole again. And when you think about the restorative act of the gospel, how we are recreated, when you think about Genesis and how we are created, not only created, but recreated, recreated and created, it should foster at least two different things. Number one, that we are creators and we're called to create good things. But we're not only called to create good things, but we're called to create good things for the good of all people. How many times have you watched Shark Tank and you thought to yourself, shoot, why didn't I think of that? It's like such a simple way of solving a massive problem that everyone has. And you know what I would say? If you're a Christian and you understand that you've been made in the image of a creator, Christians should really be on the forefront of innovation and creative activity. You have a creative gene that is within you, but I don't think many of us have tapped into that creativity enough. And the reason for that is because creativity and the imagination is a muscle. You don't use it, it atrophies. You have to use it uh, in order for it to grow bigger and bigger. And one of the perks that we have is living in a city that is filled with innovation, filled with creativity. But one of the things that we have to check about ourselves and our motivation is why do we want to do this? Do we really want to do it for the good of all people? The other question is, what would it look like for a church to foster a community of creatives, people that are innovative? And 
I don't know the answer to that because I'm not creative enough. But I know that some of you might know how to do that. And that is a conversation that we can certainly have. But I do know that in this room there is, there is some kind of Tolkien, there is some kind of C.S. Lewis, in this room there is some kind of Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg with a redeemed imagination and you want to use this redeemed imagination with the God-given talents that you have given you to create good things for the good of all people. Let's pray together. Father, uh, may this uh, teaching, this lesson sort of empower us to mirror you, to mimic you, that uh, we are all creators, uh, but we are not called to create bad things, but we are called to create good things for the good of all people. Uh, Life is short, and we want to use it in such a way where we can help as many people as possible with the God-given talents that you've given to us. And so whether our... uh, inclinations and leanings are in the tech world or in finance or in law or in food or in the arts, whatever it might be. Help us to dream big. Help us to be as creative, imaginative, out of the box as possible to serve and glorify you just as the heavens do and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In your name I pray. Amen.